you have your Bibles, you can feel free to turn to Genesis chapter 25, where in just a minute we will read. But I'd like to summarize uh, this summer of 2023. We are doing a series that is, I think, pretty practical as we talk about the reality that we are living in a world where everything is broken, nothing is the way that it is supposed to be. That's exactly what the scriptures prepared us for. Um, after creation in Genesis 1 and 2, the events of Genesis 3 and the fall and humanity's rebellion into sin, we were told that it would ruin the earth. And we have seen in many ways how it has. And so we've had not just a serious conversation about sin, but we have had an equally robust conversation about redemption. That we believe God is at work in His church, through His church, redeeming broken things. Not leaving things to remain as they are, not leaving people to remain as they are, but that He is at work with a power in His people to transform them, to change them. And so we've looked at some of the broken things of worship and work and rest. We spent three weeks talking about relationships and that broken relationships really can be restored. People can be changed. And now this morning we come to what may be the most practical of all of our subjects. And I fear it may be the one that gets me in trouble this morning. Because now we're going to talk about our appetites. That even our food and our drink is to be for the glory of God. And there is good news in this, people. Listen carefully. Don't mishear what Pastor Paul is saying this morning. There is good news here. Uh, but as always, that good news also has some hard news and some honest confession for all of us. So as an example of a broken appetite, there are many in Scripture, but give your attention to this one from Genesis 25, verses 27 to 34. The boys, Jacob and Esau, grew up. And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, that is the boy's father. But Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And Jacob replied, Well, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. 
Let's pray that the Lord would open our ears and our hearts and help us to make some application of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we admit this morning we are mere men and women, mere boys and girls. We admit that we are fallen and ruined and in need of redemption. And so, Lord, would you show us the mercy that we need? And would you equally show us the power that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ to not be mastered by appetites in this life? We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. So, much to say on the subject, and I will try to work fast this morning, but I'll begin with this. And I think I've told you this story before, but in the 18th century, there were two prominent ministers of the gospel, good evangelical men. Uh, one, a Brit, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Another, in America, Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody. Both faithful communicators, preachers, evangelists, uh, heroes, we would say, in the church. But the story is told of the day these two men, who had heard about each other, met each other. Their ministries were widely known. They knew who the other was. But on the occasion that they met each other, something very interesting happened. D.L. Moody was a portly gentleman. He had a, a large belly, we would say. And um, he came and he met Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Spurgeon, you may recall, um, he really enjoyed smoking cigars. So as they met, Spurgeon had a cigar in his hand and the evangelist D.L. Moody, as he meets him, says something along the lines of, I've heard so many good things of you, sir, but I've got a problem with that. And he points at his cigar. Without skipping a beat, Spurgeon looks at Moody, looks at his big belly, turns his cigar around backwards in his hand and takes his knuckle, shoves it into the belly of Moody and says, well, I, sir, have a problem with that. And I love that story as we talk about appetites, desires, because the moral of it is this, and this is the tone and the nature of the sermon, I hope. We've all got our issues. We all have our vices. So be very, very careful to, be, to not be a finger pointer. So this morning I'll say things, and you may think I'm pointing a finger. I'm, I'm not. Um, you very well could turn your knuckle on me and shove it in my portly belly. So this morning, let's not do that, but let's do look at what the Scriptures say about our human appetites, what's right about them, how they've gone wrong, and how they can undo us in this life. It's an area that needs great wisdom, great discipline, great care. Uh, as is the case in this series, we have three points this morning. Creation, fall, and redemption. And the first point is this. We were created as human beings, with appetites and provided with the means of properly feeding them. 
Okay, so this is Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This is prior to the fall, the catastrophic fall in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we were created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, and we had appetites. It tells us that the Lord gave every seed-bearing plant, every tree, every fruit-bearing tree for food. It also says He gave us the birds of the air and the fish in the sea and the beasts that creep and crawl over God's creation and that we were to subdue those and rule over those. But that's the context, is that we were created with a need for nutrients and God provided them. And the appetite was certainly a part of that. And really the human being, if you think of it with me like this, is this complicated nexus of appetites. There are all kinds of appetites that we have. Appetites for food, appetites for drink, appetites for relationships, appetite for sexuality. And all of those, in their proper context, created by God, met by God with an appropriate provision for how those appetites would be filled. But you also know that we just have to get to Genesis chapter 3 to find how ruin has affected everything. Everything about the human person is now in a condition of corruption and ruin and is not the way it was supposed to be. And so now all of our appetites, our desires are now in some way fallen. They're distorted. They're not the way they're supposed to be. And so this morning, the appetite for food and drink. And like with everything else, you know, no two persons are corrupted in exactly the same way. We are all corrupted, but our appetites are different. Our vices are different, but we're all corrupted. We're all sinful. And so maybe for you, food and drink is is just not an issue. I would say congratulations. That's great news for you. It may be more of an issue than you know. But for some people, this is a major issue. And the scriptures do speak to it. According to a health journal, an abstract online, excessive food consumption leading to an epidemic of overweight and obesity is the most serious public health problem facing the United States and is one of the top modifiable detriments of health. It shares many of the characteristics of substance abuse. No time to comment about the Food and Drug Administration, but those two things go together for a reason. They are substances that can be misused, that can be abused, that are, in a sense, drugs or that have drug-like effects on the human person. Now, a few things about how the fall has distorted even our appetites. First, our bodily appetites now seek to control us. I want you to think about that. Appetites can control us. That's what the fall has done. We see evidence of our appetites controlling us in the Scriptures. You might think of Numbers chapter 11. You remember that uh, Israel wandering in the desert, 
they grew hungry and they grumbled against God and their hearts became like fists against the God of Israel because their appetite was controlling them. And we understand how, how powerful and strong appetites are. They have a power to control the sinful human person. James chapter 1, verse 14. Listen to how J uh, James describes sin as a kind of consuming appetite. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire or his own appetite. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the consuming nature, the controlling nature of sin. According to Time magazine, two-thirds of Americans have significant difficulties controlling their food intake, resulting in health risks from various kinds of disorders and even addictions as food, here it is, is considered by some to be several times more addictive than crack cocaine. Did you know that? I kind of know that from my own experience. Because you know Pastor Paul loves food. And we're all about being honest this morning. This sermon resonates with me. It speaks to me. It makes me look at myself, my desires, my appetites, why I love food so much. And is it possible that I could be consumed by my own appetite? And that's the second thing that can happen. Our bodily appetites not only control us, but they now seek to consume us. They swallow us. And that's what sin has done. It has reversed the proper order of everything. And now our appetites can be like a consuming fire that is out of control. That is the story of Genesis chapter 25 of what we read concerning Esau. He comes in from being out in the land. He's worked hard. It was hot and muggy, maybe like it is here for us. He comes in and he is exhausted. And it says he's famished. And he's not thinking well. His God is his stomach. His glory would become his shame. And he would sell his birthright, yea, even his own soul, for literally a bowl of bean soup. And that ought to just make us shake our head with a sense of, wow, the fall really has affected us. And Esau is a living example of how our appetites, they can consume us. And we have to be very careful. And I'm not just talking about food. All the appetites, all the hungers of the sinful person, every one of them can dominate us. But for this morning, we're talking about food and drink specifically. C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, has an amazing scene that seems to capture this so well. Uh, you may remember it's when Edmund is approached by the queen, or the white witch. And he asks her, here, I'll read this so I get it all correct. She says to Edmund, It is dull, son of Adam, which is a reminder of who he is. 
He's a son of the fall of Adam. It is dull, son of Adam, to drink without eating, said the queen, the witch. What would you like best to eat, asking the little boy? And he thinks and says, Turkish delight, please, your majesty. And so the queen let another drop fall from her bottle, her dark magic. It dropped onto the snow and instantly there appeared a round box tied with a green silk ribbon, which when opened turned out to contain several pounds of the best Turkish delight. Each piece was sweet and light to the very center and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. At last, the Turkish delight was all finished, and Edmund was looking very hard at the empty box and wishing that she would ask him whether he would like some more. Probably the queen knew quite well what he was thinking, for she knew, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight and that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating it until they killed themselves. Such a powerful image of the human appetite and that we will kill ourselves. As someone has said, we will dig our grave with a knife and fork. One bite at a time. Now, everything feels so negative, Pastor Paul, and lunch is coming. Please don't ruin lunch for me. We're going to the Chinese buffet today. Okay, well, here's a little relief to the room. And uh, credit to my, one of my seminary professors who taught me this. Abusus non tolet usum. It's a Latin phrase that means, but abuse does not nullify proper use. Right Now, the Scriptures post-Genesis 3 give us some pretty wonderful and amazing stories about food. Let me give you a few of those. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, and then Ecclesiastes 8, verse 15. Listen to this. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God, he says. And then Ecclesiastes 8.15. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life that God has given them under the sun. Okay, do you hear it? Food, festivity, celebrating. It is a good gift of God. But for us as Americans, here's the rub. Every day is a feast. Every meal is a feast. And for God's people, what we're given in Scripture are occasional feasts. Not every meal being an all-you-can-eat buffet. And so maybe for us, in the way of application, and I'll speak to myself, maybe Pastor Paul needs more fasting and less feasting. But when we feast, we feast. 
and we feast to the glory of God. Everything in its proper context, everything in its proper proportion, just like what was said of work, just like what was said of rest. There's a six-in-one ratio, remember, to work and to rest. There are proper ratios even for our appetites with food and drink. We're not given those concretely, but we're given them in principle. So you go work those out. What is the proper context, the proper proportion? What I know is this. This is what we in our very blessed culture, very prosperous culture, there's a reason why most of us struggle with this. Food is everywhere. And where there is American food, there is sugar. And sugar is addictive and sugar is destructive. So many good things you could go watch um, that I did watch, and I just don't have time to put it in my, my sermon. But you can watch the Super Size Me documentary about the, the young man who only ate McDonald's for 30 days. Every meal was McDonald's. He was a very healthy man, but 30 days later, he had gained 25 pounds and felt that he was addicted to McDonald's. You can watch a documentary or read a book called How Sugar Changed the World, and that will blow your mind on all kinds of levels. There's a documentary called Death by Sugar, which probably should be required watching in our church. I'm just kidding. Um, and then, and then more, more playfully, but alarmingly, uh, there's an episode on the Life Channel called My Strange Addiction, where a young woman does not like to eat normal food, but she says she's addicted to eating the little rubber pull-off pieces of car tires. And she'll eat them like potato chips. And of course, it's, it's toxic. It's not healthy. There's no nutrition. But there's something. The fall has affected us all differently, right? So there's something not right here in all of us. And there's something not right here in all of us. And some, some addictions, some perversions, many people would say, that's crazy. But to the person who has it, they're trapped. It's like they're in chains. And so we have to have compassion as we see the sins of one another and as we live in a land that probably truthfully is preying upon our addictions and building an economy off of those addictions. But the Scriptures speak about the appetite, the human appetite. They warn us of overeating and of losing control and that is not just an American thing. That's always been true since the fall. Listen to Proverbs 25, verse 16. If you find honey, eat just enough, because too much of it and you will vomit. Well, they understood eating disorders just as we do. That some people could not stop eating honey, just like Turkish delights. And they would go on and on until it made them sick. And so we're warned, don't let your appetite control you. Don't let it consume you. It is a perversion, and you need to be very careful. Eating disorders are all around us. Overeating disorders, bulimia, binging, purging. 
pica, I think is what it's called, P-I-C-A, when you eat non-foods, which is what the lady in, in the tires was all about. And not just those kinds of disorders, but food can be misused as a kind of enslaving idol of pleasure or escapism or being an emotional eater seeking comfort from a food, a created thing, that can never provide true and real comfort. These are all perversions. They're all the fruit, the, the product of the fall in us. And it's why in our larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, when it speaks about the sixth commandment and our necessity of protecting the quality of human life, it's why there it says that it forbids all excessive passions. It forbids all distracting cares. It forbids, did you know this? The immoderate use of meat and of drink, of labor and of recreations. Which was their way of saying, essentially what I've said this morning, our appetites for those things will consume us. They'll control us. And we'll lose our health, our vitality, and our strength. And therefore, it needs to be protected and regarded as holy to the Lord. That takes great discipline. That takes great control. Thomas Jackson, that's General Thomas Jackson, that's Stonewall Jackson... One of my favorite quotes on this subject, he says this. He was a man of great discipline and self-control. He said, Eat not to the point of dullness, and drink not to the point of elevation. And what he's saying is what all of you know, just as I do. You can reach a point of eating where you're just dull, and you're done. You're worthless. He says, don't go that far with food. Know where the line is. And with drink, he says, to the point of elevation. He said there are, there are boundaries that he is determined to stay in. Now, this was an amazing man of discipline. He's the same one, I think I've told you before, who um, a historical account of him says that he once had buttered bread and he thought it was so good, he vowed to never eat it again. And I'm like, wow, okay, I maybe have made a vow. Oh, I'm never eating Chinese food again, right? But give it a couple hours. I could have a little bit more, right? That's how it is. That's how our appetites are. But that we would have some discipline and self-control to say, this could undo me. This would not be a good trajectory for me. I'm going to practice and exercise some discipline and some self-control, that my appetite doesn't consume and control me. Those are all overeating disorders, but you know, like I do, that is not the only way that we get this wrong in this world. There are under-eating disorders, disorders of anorexia. There are idols of under-eating, uh, idols of control, idols of vanity, idols of beauty, all of that just as wrong as the overeating. It is an appetite, a good appetite gone bad. And the gospel speaks to all of it, even our food and our drink to the glory of God. And that brings us to drink, perversions of drink. 
Overconsuming drink would be the first perversion. Listen to what Proverbs 23 says. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. So that is a wisdom principle for life. And the writer of the Proverbs says, be very careful with overconsumption of food and drink because the people who are given to that can come to ruin. Then in Ephesians chapter 5, probably more familiar to you, we're told, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So Old Testament and New Testament, both speaking the same word of caution. Don't be given to your appetites. Don't let them define you. Don't let them control you. And so maybe the most helpful thing in the way of application would be to say this, because you should be and I should be saying, okay, well, where are the boundaries? Where's, where's wisdom? And how would wisdom have me live? Well, here's a general principle that maybe can help. Does your current practice your use of food and or drink conclude in you curling up in a ball, motionless and pitiful, worthless feeling, not wanting to work, not wanting to do, not wanting to go? Or does it leave you glad-hearted and singing the doxology, eager to go back to work for the glory of God, either, e eager to be with the people of God? You know, maybe that's one way to apply the boundaries is what is this doing to me? My posture towards people and towards work. Is this engaging me or am I withdrawing? Am I curled up in a ball unable to perform or am I eager to serve the Lord? So true story, funny story. Um, I was in seminary. I was, I guess, about 25 or 6 years old when I had my first experience with, with this reality. So I was in St. Louis, Missouri, and I went to study at the, um, we think the Atlanta Bread Company, but it, it, was, uh, it was the St. Louis Bread Company, now known as Panera, same place as Panera. So I went to get a little snack and to study in Panera. And as a 25-year-old, 26-year-old, I did what 25 and 26-year-olds do. I got a tall Coke and two bagels. And I sat in that booth and I ate, I loved, boy, it was good. It was fantastic. I ate that and I pulled out my books. All of a sudden, I couldn't keep my eyes open. And I literally went and got in my truck in the parking lot and slept for an hour and then went back in and, and studied. That's curling up in a ball worthless, unable to go back to work and to engage. And I, that, that began my experience with carbohydrates and sugar and understanding what these things do. Now, young people who are hearing this, um, I've shared this talk with college students when I worked with them. And they would just kind of glaze over on all this because they hadn't yet experienced it, right? They're tall and slim and food just doesn't affect them that much. 
And I joked with them, save the handout because when you turn 40, all of this comes crashing in the room as reality. So those of you who are older know that what I'm saying is, is common to many. But this is what the fall has done to us. Good gifts of God can now, we can go off the rails with these things. Food and drink. And so every one of us needs to discern our heart and ask, how is the, what is the right use? What is a God-honoring use of food and drink? And Pastor Paul does believe that both can be and are for the glory of God. So how is there any hope of redemption? We've heard it's all bad. We heard we're all going off the rails. Thanks a lot, Pastor Paul. Well, here's the good news. Here's the hope of redemption. Because we really do believe that God has power to do all things. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So there's our aim, there's our goal, to glorify God with all things that pertain to the bodies that He's given us. The good news in the gospel is this. It's two things that enable us to glorify God. The first is a new power, and the second is the hope of a new appetite. So very quickly on each of those. This new power is what we have talked about several times, and it's what this whole series is about. It's about sanctification, that God has power to bring newness into the lives of His people. And in particular, a subset of sanctification is mortification. That is putting sin to death, to mortify it, to see more and more, more, and more by the Spirit of God, sin lose its controlling power in our lives. That's the doctrine of mortification. And we believe it's true. If only you could snap your fingers and make it fully true all at once, wouldn't that be great? But God says He does change His people and He mortifies sin and He gives us a heart to put sin to death. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, its appetites, we could say. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, and here is the theme for it all, at least for myself. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. And I think that's the goal. That's the prayer of the Christian is, I've got freedom to eat, I've got freedom to drink, but I don't want to be mastered by anything. Any good gift of God in a fallen world that's corrupt, it could try to master me, and I don't want to be mastered by anyone but the Lord Jesus. So that's the new power available to those who are in Christ. And then secondly and lastly, a new appetite. Is there an appetite that is so powerful that it can chase away our fallen appetites. I think there is, and I think it's what Jesus speaks to in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, where we're told, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's God working a hunger and thirst in us, not for sin, not for going off the rails, but for righteousness, that we would rightly use His good gifts and bring glory to His name. That's the prayer for new power and for new appetites to grow in us, to grow in our children, to grow in all of God's church. That's our prayer, that we would have a hunger and a thirst, not for the things of this world, but for righteousness. And that's how we pray for one another. That's how we pray for our families. I'll close with this before we sing. If you have a handout, it's, it's one of the quotes on the front of the page. But this is a book from Linda Turkhurst. Listen to the title of it. It's called Made to Crave, Satisfying Your Deepest Desire with God, Not Food. In her book, she reveals she's very honest about her, her wrestling with her appetite. But listen to these few sentences from her. I am made for more than the vicious cycle of eating uncontrollably, gaining weight, and stressing out. I am made to rise up, do battle with my personal issues or appetites, using the Lord's strength in me to defeat them spiritually, physically, or mentally, and all for the glory of God. Because our truest cravings are satisfied in Him alone. And then she says this, My issue was plain and simple. I lacked self-control. I tried to sugarcoat it, but the truth was I did not have a weight problem as much as I had a spiritual problem. I learned to use food for comfort rather than learning to depend on God in faith. And to make things worse... I was simply too lazy to make time to exercise. That's all a part of her testimony that's in that book. Look, this is practical theology. This is looking at what the Scriptures say to us and applying them to ourselves in the world in which we live. If food and drink and this appetite is not a struggle for you, that's great. But for most Americans and for most Christians, it is. But God is an available source of power and strength that we could have an appetite for righteousness and not for abuse and misuse. So let's pray that that's true, and then we'll close with an appropriate hymn. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we're not left powerless or aimless in this life. We're not left to wallow in our sin and our misery, but we're empowered by you for change. And so, Lord, would you do that work in us? Would you help us to look by faith to you, to your word, and find strength in one another to mortify the sins of our appetite and to see them redeemed for your glory? Lord, that is the gospel that we believe. Help us to believe it. Help us to take it seriously. And we ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.